Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. For the past five Sundays, we have been talking about how to love the difficult people in our lives. And that takes a lot of courage. And that's why this series is titled Courageous Love. And as we wrap up the series today, I want to leave you with one final charge and some encouraging words about the power of courageous love. So we'll start with um, the encouraging words. There are actually three encouraging words out of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, and here's what it says. Love never fails. Love never fails. Now, you may be thinking, never? I mean, how, how, how can that be? I mean, I personally, I've seen plenty of love failures. I have a number of good friends whose marriages have failed, and not for a lack of serious effort. And I've had the sad experience, and you probably too, of seeing some very dear friendships suddenly fall apart. So what does this verse mean? Love never fails. We, we see the wreckage of love all around the landscape. So what does this verse mean? Well, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and the Greek word that's used here for fail in this verse means to stop flying. It's the image of a, of a bird that has first of all descended and then crashed because the wings stopped flying. Now, we think of love as a condition that kind of just happens to us. And that's why we say we're in love or we're no longer in love. We've fallen out of love like we've entered into a, a mysterious territory and now we've left that mysterious territory. But if you've been with us over this series of messages, my hope is that you've come to understand that love is, is really a commitment to action. The emotions, the conditions, they are continually changing, but love is a commitment to action. And so another way of translating this verse, instead of love never fails, you could say it this way, love never stops flapping its wings, never stops working on it. Now, it really doesn't matter over time how you feel or what the circumstances are. Love will just keep working. It'll keep flapping its wings. Love keeps doing the things that are necessary to keep it from crashing, from failing. And the reason this is important is because love always occurs against the gravity of selfishness. We are all naturally selfish. And so if we're really going to have quality relationships, we are going against the gravity of our own selfishness and their selfishness. And that's why love keeps flapping its wings. It requires ongoing effort. Now, of course, there are times when the updraft of love is strong and you can just kind of glide on the thermals of love. But over time, love stays aloft because of effort. Well, what, what kind of effort is required to keep love from failing? Well, the four verses before verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 13 list 16 specific activities of love. That's why this is referred to as the love chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. Now, today I want to focus on the last four of these 16 that precede this statement, love never fails. And the reason I want to look at these four is because they are all preceded by the word always. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, the verse before the one we just read. It, speaking of love, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And that's why love never fails. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to keep doing these four always. So let's look at them in order. First of all, love always protects. Now the Greek word that's used here for protect means 
to put up a barrier or construct a wall of some kind. In other words, love is always putting up walls and barriers. Now, that sounds like the opposite of what you would think love would do, right? I mean, the very essence of love is to reduce the personal distance between you and another person. So how does a wall fit into love? Let me explain it this way. I want you to think of the most valuable item that you own. Don't worry about whether you get this right or not. Just think of a valuable item. And um, it may be, you know, uh, a valuable piece of jewelry, maybe a sentimental heirloom edition of the jewelry you've got, or maybe it's a family photo album, or maybe, honestly, it's the money in your bank account. doesn't matter what it is. I just want you to think about something that you value. Now, my guess is that those items are not sitting out in an open field somewhere. They're not in your front lawn right now while you're here. They are behind walls. And in some cases, layers of walls. They might be behind the walls of a safe that are in your house, behind the walls of your house. And the reason is because walls are used to protect what is valuable to us. Now, a relationship requires that two people give access to the most valuable part of who they are, and that is their hearts, that inner invisible core that where the real you exists. And just like the stuff that we value, we don't leave our hearts just sitting out in the open for anyone to trample on and steal. We wisely put our hearts behind protective barriers to keep it safe, and we only allow those that we trust to have access to our hearts. Every relationship, if it's going to endure, requires two kinds of walls. Walls that are set up to protect your heart and walls that are set up to protect their heart. First, we're going to look at the walls that protect you. It's the walls of of your home that define the physical outline of where you live. Whether it's an apartment or a house, doesn't matter, it's your home. And those walls mark what is yours, and they protect what is important to you. So imagine if you were to invite someone into your home, and they trashed it. They threw things on the ground of of your kitchen. They took a hammer to your kitchen cabinets. They smashed your TV, and then they walked out. How would you respond the next time that individual knocked on your front door? Well, you'd keep that door closed, wouldn't you? Probably call 911. But imagine with me, what if you didn't? What if you invited them back in? And what if you kept inviting them back into your house again and again and again, and they kept trashing your house? What would that say about how you view your home? It would say that you really don't value your home or anything in your home. And I'm saying this because your heart and my heart is far more precious than anything that any of us have in our homes. And if a person has no walls around their heart, it means that they really don't value themselves. They don't see the the value of what God has created. Anyone can walk into their lives and take what they want and then leave. And that's not in keeping with how God sees us. Our hearts are the most precious part of all of creation. Look at all the stunning things in creation. And and you, the real you, is more precious than anything else. 
I read these shocking words just a few weeks ago in Psalm 16, or 116, verse 15. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Now, that's, I've read that before, but it shocked me again, as it does every time I read this. Because who refers to death as precious? No one thinks of death as precious. It's a sadness beyond any kind of sadness. It's a loss. It's, it's a deep, deep grief. But precious? No. We never think of it as precious. So why does God think of it as precious? Well, it's, it's not the death itself that is precious. That's, that's tragic. But it's what the death marks that is precious. It marks the point in time when the invisible heart is now freed from the earthly body to spend eternity with God. See, these are God's faithful servants. These are not individuals who have turned from him and have never returned. These are his faithful servants. And so for them, death is a homecoming when what God values most returns home. And that's why on both sides of the death experience, there's a very different thought and and experience. On our side, it's a grief beyond all griefs. If you've lost anyone you love, the, the grief just continues. And the reason is not because you miss their stuff, but because you miss them. The real them, the invisible them that made up who they were and what you had drawn close to and meant so much to you. And so what is a grief for us on this side is a precious thing on the side of eternity, on God's side. And it speaks to the value of our hearts, the real inner us. But either we never come to understand just how precious we really are, or we, having known that at one point, we just forget. And one of the top indicators of this is how we let people treat us. Sometimes, We let people treat us poorly because we decide that the relationship is more precious than we are. And so we put in all kinds of efforts and we put up with all kinds of stuff just in the false hope that we ourselves can sacrifice our precious hearts to keep the relationship from falling apart. We're wrong. We never can. But a lot of people do this. They view the relationship as more precious than their own heart, and they're wrong. Sometimes we allow people to treat us poorly because we get the wrong idea about what love is. And we think that love means just letting people walk all over us and take from us what we have not freely given them. In either case, this wrong view of love or this wrong value of relationships above ourselves ends up failing. It it never lasts. And that's because just like a home without walls can't be a home for very long, a heart without walls can't love for very long. Now, I am not saying that you should demand or expect damage-free relationships. That would be like inviting your people over or people over into your, into your home and then expecting there to be no mess to clean up afterwards. You know, relationships are just messy. I'm not talking about kind of the normal mess that occurs in relationships. I'm talking about the damage. You know, some people take this idea to an extreme. And they make their hearts into kind of a a glass shop of trinkets where people 
can't move without breaking something. Have you ever walked into one of those shops and you realize, kids, stay outside, you know? You can't hardly turn around without fear that you're going to knock some glass thing over and owe the owner all kinds of money. Some people construct their hearts like that where they're just super hypersensitive and you can't almost say anything without offending them. Now, that's not love either. But there are two behaviors that do require walls. And these two categories of behavior parallel the two categories in criminal law. The two major categories in criminal law is the categories of violence and the categories of theft. These are the two kinds of situations where you need walls to protect your heart. Let me define each of these so we can be very clear on what I'm talking about. Violence is using force to hurt or to harm someone. Now, the key word is force. Because by virtue of the fact that we are all sinful and we're all selfish people, it's very easy for us to say or to do something that's hurtful. And if it's brought to our attention, most often we will feel bad about what we've done and we will work to clean up the mess that we've made. But violence is hurt on another level. This is a willful act of physical, verbal, or emotional force that does harm to another. This is not just the normal hurt that occurs that we got to mop up and clean up. This is taking a hammer to the cabinets. This, this is violence. The second category is theft. That, obviously, is taking what belongs to another. Now, physical theft is obvious, just like physical violence is obvious. That's clear to see what that is. But what about heart theft? What about heart violence? What does heart theft look like? Well, there's many ways people can steal from your heart in ways that you have not given them permission to take something. You know, people can steal your reputation by lying about you to someone else. Or it might be a theft of your privacy by, by gossip. Other people will gossip about you and steal something that's private that you have not given them permission to take. Or it could be a theft of your time, stolen by someone who's continually irresponsible and lazy, and it just costs you more and more time. Not time you've chosen to give, time they've chosen to steal by their laziness or irresponsibility, and on and on it goes. You'll usually know if something's been stolen from you when you're upset that you have to do this or that. You haven't been asked, and you haven't decided to give. It's just been taken. So how do you establish and defend walls that protect your heart from violence and theft? Well, first of all, you have to understand there there are no impenetrable walls that can be constructed. In other words, in a fallen world like this, we will be hurt and we will be stolen from. But God has given us two types of walls with increasing thickness to use in the defense of our hearts. It's a dangerous world out there. And we can't live this life without getting hurt. But God has given us some walls for our defense. Here are the two walls I want to describe this morning in this area. The first are verbal walls. Verbal walls. This is usually where you start. This is when you tell someone that they have crossed a personal boundary and either done harm to you or taken something from you. Now, in most cases, if you're dealing just with Everyday garden variety selfishness and sin, this will be all you have to do. 
They just need to be told. And then they will back off. Titus 3 verse 10 describes this process this way. It says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. This is an example of the kind of theft that people do to each other. You know, a divisive person steals what? They steal relationships. They take two people who are friends and they rip them apart. And those people need to be warned. You, you have to, you start by warning someone who's doing that. Well, why do you warn them? Well, because just by observing, you can't tell for sure whether they're doing this willfully or forcefully or in ignorance. It sure feels like they're doing it willfully and forcefully and with full knowledge, but you don't know for sure. We don't know what's going on in the other people's hearts. So you, so you warn them. May, they may not be at all aware of what they're doing. But then why warn them a second time? Just to be sure they understood the first time. I mean, the very nature of communication, just because I say it as clearly as I intend to say it, doesn't mean the other person understands exactly what I've said. That's why, if they do it again, you, you, need, you see what we talked about last time? This is what I'm talking about. You warn them a second time. Now, verbal walls are not to be erected in anger. You just calmly and clearly declare the existence of a wall around your heart. I mean, you might start by saying something as simple as, I'm troubled by what you said. Now, maybe you heard what they said wrong, or maybe you read what they said wrong. But if it was, in fact, a theft or an act of violence, say so. Tell them what they've done. And then clearly warn them that they need to stop. You see, the problem is we don't do this nearly enough. And so we allow people to just keep doing us harm, and we get angrier and angrier and angrier, and all of a sudden it just blows, and the whole relationship blows up because we haven't said, hey, hey, sorry, that's, don't take that. Don't say that. Don't do that, please. If that doesn't work, we move on to the next kind of wall. That's physical walls. This puts distance between you and the person who's doing the theft or doing the violence. Now, if the violence is physical, you bypass verbal and go straight to physical. You get out of there. Leave immediately and do not go back unless you have solid reason to believe it's safe. And by solid reason, I mean not you think it's safe, but rational people who know you and know them agree with you that it's safe. You start here. If, if, if it gets physical. But if, as is often the case, the theft or the violence is verbal and emotional, and it continues even after clear verbal warnings, then you need to put up a physical wall. What does it say at the end of the verse? Titus 3.10, warn them once, warn them twice. After that, have nothing to do with them. Nothing. Now, nothing is the thickest form of the phys physical wall. I mean, you separate yourself, you pull out from that relationship. And in some cases, like physical abuse, again, you need to do this immediately. You may need to even file legal action and seek a restraining order to enforce that wall. But often, it is enough to wall off the place, the area where the theft or the violence is occurring. 
For example, if someone is, is verbally abusing you, I'm not just talking about saying some words you don't like to hear. I'm, I'm, they're yelling or they're swearing at you or they're cutting you down again and again and again. You, don't, you shouldn't put up with that. Your heart is far more valuable than to allow that to occur to yourself. But you, you may not have to completely eliminate the relationship and have nothing to do with them. It may be enough, and you should start here, as long as it's not physical violence, you should start here by, when they start yelling, just say, you know, I, I'm not going to stick around for this. You don't do it in anger. You just put a wall around that, and, and you leave. While they are yelling and saying that, you have nothing to do with them. Once they stop yelling, once well, maybe we can, we can talk some more. But not while you're doing that. Now, let me ask you, does any of this sound like love to you? Have nothing to do with them, warn them, then have nothing to do with them? Sadly, it doesn't sound like love to us. Do you know why? It's because our understanding of love is so shallow and so weak that it really is incapable of handling the reality of loving in a fallen, sinful world. You know, we, we have this fluffy kind of emotional view of love. But love is frontline, hand-to-hand combat in a sinful world. In a, weird, a real world, love must always protect. But the walls of protection are not only for us. That's what we've been talking about, protecting our hearts. The walls of protection are also for them. And that's because we're not the only valuable person in the relationship. They're valuable too. You know, our, our heart is, is like a home. It's not like a castle. In other words, people are not coming to bow before king or queen you in a relationship. No, they, they have the exact same value that you do. Sometimes people develop relationships where it's all about protecting myself and I could care less about anyone else. No, that's, that's incomplete. So if a person lets you into their hearts, we need to honor that gift and protect them with the walls they deserve. There are two walls particularly that we put up to protect other people's hearts in relationships. The first of those two is privacy walls. You know, if someone lets you into their heart, you're going to learn things about them that other people don't know. And hear this clearly that other people have no business knowing. And you need to protect their privacy and not talk about them behind their back or post about them without their permission. You know, many relationships have failed because privacy was not protected. Do you know why we don't protect people's privacy? Because sharing a private bit of information about someone else creates a false sense of intimacy with another relationship. You know, if I were to sit down with any of you today and say, you know what, I want to tell you something that I've not told anybody else. What would you think? Oh, I guess I'm closer to Bevan than I thought I was. And you would lean in, and there would be a deeper bond between us because I would be taking the risk to share something private with you. But rather than do that, a lot of times people will take private information from other relationships and use that 
to create a false sense of intimacy. They'll say, you know what? I want to tell you something about this person that nobody else knows. It creates the same effect, the, the same feel without the risk of me actually sharing something about myself. So it creates the intimacy without any of the risk of me telling you something really about myself. And that's why we traffic so often in other people's stories and other people's lives and what's going on with other people. Because it creates the illusion that we're having a relationship with here when we're just gossiping. That's all we're doing. We're just using their private information as food to fuel the illusion that we actually have a close relationship. And that, boy, that just destroys relationships. The way you know if you're talking about something that you shouldn't be talking about, about another person, is ask yourself this. If they walked into the room, would I stop talking? If you would stop talking, you shouldn't be talking. That's the rule. Just ask yourself. If they walk, would I feel, oh, just stop. Put up the wall. Protect their privacy. Now, I mentioned the online stuff. What's happening now is people are posting all kinds of stuff about other people, and it's just wreaking havoc in relationships. The second kind of wall that we construct to protect another person in a relationship is the mercy wall. Mercy walls. What's a mercy wall? 1 Peter 4.8 talks about this one. It says, above all, Love each other deeply. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's a big way. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love builds a wall and a roof over all kinds of sins. Now, that sounds like the opposite of protecting yourself from all kinds of wrong that's done to you. But this is not talking about the violence or the theft. This is talking about your garden variety, relational dings and irritations that occur in any relationship. You know, if we demand anything close to perfection in our relationships, love is going to fail. That's because much of the hurt and much of the wrong that's done to us is not of the forceful violence or theft variety. It's just people being people. So what are we supposed to do with all those relational things, those, mm, oh, mm. what do we do with all that? Well, we're to wall them off and cover them in mercy. Treat them the way God treats us. Not as we deserve, but in mercy and in kindness. You see, if, if we blow the whistle on every single infraction, <laughs> love's going to crash. That's too much weight on any set of wings. No relationship can survive if, if every single statement and every single piece of irritation is brought up and said, hey, stop doing that or I'm leaving. It's like, ugh. I, I just can't say anything then. Or we, you, they can't say anything. Love that can't survive in that environment. So there needs to be mercy walls. Just like God's mercy has been kind to us and he relates to us in kindness and mercy, we need to build those walls. Again, not around theft, not around violence, but we need to build walls around just your garden variety, dings and bumps of sin, and just forgive. So love always protects. That's because this is a fallen world, and our hearts need protection. And secondly, love always trusts. So protection builds the walls 
that create the safe place that is needed for love to endure. But trust builds the floor. It builds the foundation on which relationships stand. Now, trust is what we count on. That's kind of a working definition for trust. What do we depend on? What do we, what do we count on? Well, that's what we trust. We count on it to work. Let me give you an example. Gravity is something that we trust, something that we count on. So does anyone want to predict what's going to happen when I drop this ball? I mean, everybody knows. I mean, this is no surprise. So let's just make sure gravity's still working. Yep. I didn't hear any gasps. No one seemed to be surprised. <gasps> it went down, not up. Because how many times has that happened? Every time, right? It's happened all the time. And I, I notice as I look around that I don't see a single person hanging onto their seat for dear life in fear that gravity might just be turned off in the next five minutes and they're going to start floating. <laughs> now, everybody, we, we know what gravity does, and we trust it. Why do we trust it so much? Years and years and years of personal experience. You know, in your entire life, gravity has never failed you. So you don't even think about it. I mean, now, if half the time the ball, whew, almost gravity almost took over there, <laughs> half the time the ball started floating up, then you would know this is, oh, yeah, this is a non-gravity day. And the other time it went, oh, this is a gravity day. Well, then you wouldn't know. And it would be a very different life. You really couldn't live your life that way on this planet. So we don't even think about gravity. We trust gravity, and we make our decisions based on its reliability. But trust in people is much, much harder. Why? Well, because unlike gravity, have people ever failed us? Oh, yeah. A bunch. You know, we've counted on some people. And we've made some decisions that depended on them only to have them fail us. And it's cost us. So now we're understandably guarded and slow to trust people. You see, relational trust is, is a precious commodity because it takes a lot of time to earn and it can be lost in an instant. It's, it's kind of like gold. It takes years and years and years to acquire, but only minutes to steal. That's the way trust is. I mean, even with gravity, for all of our decades, many of us experience with gravity, if this ball did in fact do the unexpected and floated, you would first of all assume that I was doing some magic trick and there were some strings or wires or something attached. But if you came on stage and you tried it yourself and it did the same thing and everyone got a chance to come on stage and it was floating, in an instant, all of your decades of trust and gravity would be shaken by one experience. And that's the way trust is. You can have a deeply trusting relationship that's gone on for decades and it takes one act of betrayal to shatter that trust. That's how fragile trust is and how precious Trust is. So in a world in which we've all failed and been failed, how can we build and rebuild, keep rebuilding trust? Well, there, there's two main ways. The first is we need to be trustworthy. 
We need to keep working on being the kinds of people that others can count on, worthy of trust. Now, there's many ways we do that, just keeping our word, showing up when we say we're going to show up, defending them when we need to defend them. But one of the ways I want to mention that many people don't think of is we, we are trustworthy when we respect whatever walls they've put up in the relationship. You see, walls and foundations go together, don't they? I mean, this building, we poured the foundation first, and everybody that saw the foundation knew what was coming next. What's coming next? Walls. You don't just pour concrete slabs and, you know, so you have a nice smooth spot on. No, you put walls up and roofs on those foundations. They, they go together. So if you encounter walls in a relationship, it's because the trust is, is being laid. Now, when we encounter walls in a relationship, what's the tendency? The tendency is try to knock those walls down. Because those walls are between you and the person. But the walls, you have to understand, are there for a reason. This person is working on the foundation. They, the reason the wall is there is they don't trust you. Now, you might look at yourself and say, why did they trust me? Well, it could be because you've not proved yourself trustworthy yet. But it could be not even your fault. It could be that maybe they've been wronged by a lot of people and they just have a hard time trusting anybody. But if you get mad or you demand access to their hearts, that's only going to damage trust. That only is you telling them, hey, don't let me in. I don't respect your walls. I don't respect your value. So we need to earn trust over time. Be patient with people and work on yourself. What can I do to be a safer person? What can I do to become trustworthy? What can I do that might eventually lead to an invitation on their part into this part of their life? And work on that. The second way we can build trust and rebuild trust is to extend trust. This occurs after trust has been broken. The only way trust is ever going to be rebuilt is if you extend yourself a little bit beyond your comfort zone to give them a chance to prove themselves again. You know, if, if we demand an absolute proof that a person is trustworthy, we'll never trust anyone. No one is completely safe. And so trust can only grow if you're willing to risk. You know what the safest approach is to people? Avoid them. Just have nothing to do with them. That's your safest approach. If you really want to protect your heart, just move to some wilderness and try to not see anybody. Now, that's, that's going to do other damage to your heart because you weren't designed to be isolated. But if you're isolated and completely independent, then no one can fail you, right? And a lot of people have constructed lives like that, even apart from moving to the wilderness. But, you know, love keeps extending trust beyond safety because it realizes no one's completely safe. I, I, I'm going to have to just take some risks here. Now... It doesn't foolishly jump back in the arms of someone who has just betrayed them, but gradually, over time, it, it keeps putting its heart out there so that people can have a chance to re-earn the trust or to earn the trust in the first place. It gives people a chance. 
Doesn't take giant leaps, but incremental steps of extending trust. So love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. This is the secret sauce that flavors everything in courageous love. You know, in this series, we've often said that the, the struggle of love is, is like a battle. It's, it's hand-to-hand combat on the front lines in the war of love. And what that means, in part, is that as years go by and the relational hits keep coming and the losses keep mounting, our hearts can become pretty hurt and pretty scarred. And at some point, it can get to the point where the most logical thing seems to be we just need to give up on people in general. And we lose hope in people. And we have reason because they've wronged us so much. So many of them hurt us. So we approach any new person with a kind of the angle of, okay, how are you going to mess with me? Or what are you going to try to do to me? Or how are you going to damage me? The reason we approach this way without any hope is because it's easier to protect your heart by giving up on people than by staying in the battle. But courageous love keeps flapping its hope wings. Not out of this naive hope that people will suddenly change. That's not the hope we're talking about here. If you're one of those people that that really thinks that people are basically good and, and, and it's just a matter of time for them to become amazing, you... I don't even, I I don't know what planet you live on. So we're not talking about that naive approach. The hope is not in people. The hope is in the God who can suddenly, in an instant, bring about a 180-degree turn in anyone's life. That's why we have hope. Not because we foolishly believe people are basically good and they'll eventually show their true self. No, you don't want to see the true self. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of of whom I am the worst. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. So who's trustworthy? People? Oh, no. No, no, no. We are all sinners. You never know what we're going to do. I mean, we, we're, we got the kind of stuff inside of us. We can do noble things for decades, and then we can do the horrible thing. That's, that's who we are. No, the trustworthy saying is not about us. It's about Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the trustworthy saying. He is the trustworthy one. So, Don't foolishly put your hope in what other people might eventually do. No, put your hope in what Jesus just might do. Now, again, this doesn't mean you don't set up walls of protection or that you fully trust every sinner you know. No, hope isn't a Pollyanna approach to people. What it does mean, though, is because of Jesus, you approach every single person with at least a glimmer of hope. I mean, it may look bad now, but you see, if if God went to all of the 
sacrifice to take on a human body in the form of Jesus Christ and then offer his life on the cross to save sinners, if God did that, there's always hope. I don't know what's going to happen, but there's hope. Now, when you set up walls of protection, it's important that you do so in hope, not in anger. This is part of the secret sauce thing I was talking about. If you have a glimmer of hope in your heart, it would be great if you can get it into your eye. But if, if you can't, at least have it in your heart. That, that flavors everything in the relationship. That flavors the way you think about the relationship. It flavors the way you speak to them. And so if you need to set up walls of protection... It's very different to set up those walls to construct them in hope than it is to construct, the, construct them in anger. You know, if, you, if someone's yelling at you and you just simply say, stop yelling at me, and you walk out and slam the door, well, you've put up a wall that needs to be there, but you've constructed that wall in anger. What would it look like to construct that very same wall in hope? I don't know the exact words. You have to come up with that, but let me give you a possibility. Someone's yelling at you, they're swearing, calling you names, and you just calmly say, you know, I'm not willing to listen to you yell at me and call me names. I hope that we can talk about this calmly sometime, but now's not that time. And then you smile as best you can <laughs> and calmly leave. See, both actions put up a protective wall that needed to be there. But the first one feels pretty permanent. The other offers hope that it just might come down. Not that you can trick it, but if this person really is willing to stop abusing your heart, well, that would be great. And I look forward to that day. That's what hope says. You see, because love dreams of a better day, even in the worst of relationships. Again, it doesn't blind it to what's going on. And there may be a period of time maybe even years where you have absolutely nothing to do with a person. But that doesn't mean you lose hope. So love keeps praying for the person. And at appropriate intervals, it keeps checking back to see, maybe is there, has any change occurred? Oh, no, okay. Six months later, maybe, no, still not safe. But it never gives up. It keeps hoping. It keeps praying. And lastly, love always perseveres. This is at the last of the list, not because it's a brand new category, but because we need to keep doing these three. It's basically saying, go back, keep doing this. Go back, keep doing this. The reason is relationships are dynamic. They're always changing and they're always moving because people are dynamic. So love keeps doing these three things. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it doesn't stop. It keeps flapping its wings. It perseveres. So it always protects. You know, what is safe today in a relationship can suddenly become unsafe tomorrow. So love's always working on this protection thing. You know, love doesn't construct a concrete bunker of safety and then just hunker down until either they die or you die. That's not love. It keeps protecting. It keeps putting up new walls where new danger exists. 
it keeps taking down old walls where it's extending trust and it looks like things might be a little safer. It keeps reinforcing some of the walls that have gotten hammered and need to be reinforced and restated. And it keeps repairing other walls where we've let some things happen that we shouldn't have let happen. It just keeps protecting. And love keeps trusting. It, it keeps working on becoming the kind of person that others can count on, the kind of person that might get an invitation into the inner sanctum of a person's life where relationships occur. And it keeps taking appropriate steps of risk so that damaged trust can have the chance to be rebuilt. And love keeps hoping. It keeps hoping that God will turn around even them, even the worst of relationships. So you know what it does? It uses pencil words and pencil thoughts, not ink words and ink thoughts. When it speaks about a difficult relationship, when it thinks about a difficult relationship. You see, ink... It's permanent. I know there's some ink now that you can erase, but I'm talking about the stuff you can't. <laughs> you know, once you write something in ink, it's there. Pencil, you can write it. Oh, you know what? That's no longer true. You can erase it out. There's hope. You know, it's true right now. That's why I'm writing in pencil. This, this is real. This is what's going on right now with this person. But I'm going to write it in pencil because I hope that one day I get to take the eraser to this and say, you know, that's no longer true. It uses pencil words. Why? Because Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of which we all are. Hopefully, you can remember some things that have changed in your life by God's kindness. Shouldn't we extend the same hope to somebody else? And it hopes because only God can pronounce the final word on person. Only God gets to use ink. So until the day when God's pen will write in ink next to everyone's name, love keeps using pencil. This is why love never fails. Not because love is magic, but because love is, well, love, love's courageous. Let's pray. Father, um, our world is so starving for love. So much damage is going on and so few walls are put up appropriately to declare the value that our hearts are in your eyes. We thank you that, Jesus, you took on a body and you came into this world to save sinners of whom sometimes, as far as we can tell, we might be the worst. And because you have loved us, we have the chance to love other people. We have the chance to, to hope that you would turn them around. So God, I pray in our difficult relationships that you would give clarity about the next step that we need to take. Show us where walls need to be erected, where walls need to be removed, where walls need to be repaired. Show us what we need to do to become more trustworthy, where we need to extend trust. 
give us the words of hope that we can use and the thoughts of hope, even in the darkest of relationships. And Father, give us the heart to continue, to not hang in there for a month or a year or even a decade, but to persevere over time. And some of us need to start flapping our wings on the ground where it seems like the relationship's already crashed. But if you can change us, well, you can change anyone. Help us to love as you have loved. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.